Great. Well, thanks for coming today. The, the sermon won't be uh, necessarily... Well, I could just read that all over again, right? And then we could be done, couldn't we? It's a long text, so... We'll, we'll see if we can summarize it succinctly. Uh, get out of here before it's nighttime. Um, <clears throat> if you do have a, keep your Bible open, if, if, you, if you read along, because I'll be referring to that passage. And, and one of the things, this will be about 30 minutes... But the 30 minutes will go by much easier for you if you're not used to doing this, if you're reading along, because I'll be referring to that text, and so you'll actually know what I'm talking about. Um, So I encourage you to keep it out. This little series we're doing about uh, the topic of conversion, stories of God changing us. Five stories from the book of Acts. One of my favorite Christian authors says that conversion is portrayed throughout the the whole Bible as a two-point term. the other day I was driving down Wellgate and I saw someone do about a seven-point turn trying to get, a, get, get turned around. But it's a two-way turn. It's a turn away from idols or, or whatever you're putting your hope in. And it's a turn towards the living, the true and living God. I'm reminded of a story of one of my professors while I was at seminary. He told us. It was a sobering story. My my professor recalled a a sad conversation he had with one of his best friends from his time in seminary a long time before that. And and this friend had become a a pastor. And somewhere along the way, uh, his friend had fallen into uh, an illicit relationship with, with a woman who wasn't his wife. And after he had been found out and removed from pastoral ministry and broken marriage, angry children... Uh, he called my, prof- my professor on the phone. And he wept and he said, Tom, every week I drive 20 minutes down the road to meet her at a hotel. And along the way, I'd feel terrible amounts of shame and guilt. And I would pray to God every week as I drove to the hotel, keep me from doing this. God, stop me from doing what I'm about to do. He said, I I don't know what else I could have done. And my professor responded to him gently. Brother, you you just needed to turn the wheel. You needed to turn the wheel. That's the picture God gives us of conversion. We're all headed down a path of destruction. And we need to make a U-turn. It's no coincidence that in the book of Acts, being saved or or receiving eternal life or or entering God's kingdom, whatever you want to call it, is constantly referred to in the book of Acts as making a decisive turn. So you can see on on the screen here, Acts 3.19, repent and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out. Acts 11.21, a great number of Greeks believed and they turned to the Lord. Acts 14.21, Paul and Barnabas are preaching the good news, namely telling you to turn from worthless idols and to the living God. Acts 15.19, the Gentiles are turning to God, and there's many more. This is a book about turning, converting, turning to God. In Acts 10, here, the story we just read, we encounter a story that revolves, a conversion story that revolves around two men, namely two very different men, Cornelius and Peter. Now, now Cornelius, right, is a Roman. Not just any Roman, he's a centurion, which means he's the captain over about a a hundred other soldiers. 
And he, he's been stationed in, in the port city of Caesarea. Now this is no, this is no insignificant station in, in the far corner of, a, of the Roman Empire. Caesarea was the primary port city okay, for, for the entire eastern Mediterranean. All the incoming trade and outgoing trade in the entire Middle East went through Caesarea. This is, this is not the place or the position that you hide an ineffective commander. This is a place where you need someone. You need your top-notch military commander. You need a strong leader, but not someone who's rash. You need someone who's slightly courageous and adventurous, but is also prudent. This is Cornelius. Peter's the other guy featured. Not not quite as impressive of a rap sheet here. Poor fisherman from a small, obscure town in the Middle East. But he met Jesus. And he became a follower of Jesus. And and he became an apostle and missionary of this small but growing Christian movement. Here are the two fellows we have in this story. I really have just two points. One point basically for each person. You can already see it there. Cornelius and for Peter. And the first point is simply this. They both revolve around the topic of conversion. That's what we're focusing on. And the first one is this. Don't make a half turn. Don't make a half We'll have to unpack that as we go through the story. Now, Cornelius is not your typical pagan, is he? Verse 2. Look at this. He's a God-fearing man. Now, that's quite a technical term. That that means, although he's a Gentile, non-Jew, he's come to worship the God of Israel. It's quite remarkable. And and appreciate Israel's laws. But but it seems that he's something less than a full convert to Judaism. Because if you were going to be a full convert to Judaism, you would have to, if you're, if you're a man, you would have to be circumcised. In the Old Testament, you could become, if you were a Gentile, you could become a part of God's people. But to become part of God's people, you, if, if you're a man, you had to be circumcised. And it doesn't appear that he was. So he was called a God-fear. And, and yet he, he's devout. At some level, he acknowledges Israel's God and appreciates Israel's rule. But it's not just that he's a God-fearer. He's a charitable man. Especially towards the Jewish poor. He's also a man of prayer. So if we get one thing from this, this, this description of Cornelius, he's not your ordinary pagan. He's not the same Saul that we met last week, right, on the Damascus Road, who is this insanely self-righteous person and yet a murderous thug at the same time. This is not that kind of scenario and you might be thinking, charitable, God-fearing, man of prayer, why does he need to be converted at all? Well, hold that in the back of your mind. This, this, this passage is really structured by two visions, Cornelius and Peter, and, and two journeys. So we'll try to make our way through the passage here. One day we're told it's about three in the afternoon. Cornelius encounters an angelic messenger from God. It's this divine vision, right? But, but the message is oddly very vague. He's told there's a man named Peter down in, in the seaside town, in a seaside, in a seaside house in Joppa, about 30 miles away from, from, uh, from Caesarea. So this is about the distance you can see there. This is about the distance from Blackpool to Liverpool. All right, so there you, there you go. I've, I've contextualized it for you, at least best as I can. And, and, and you need to go get Peter from Liverpool slash Joppa, and you need to bring him up back up to you in, in Caesarea because he's got an important message for you. Okay, Cornelius? That's it. Nothing else. 
So Cornelius goes ahead and he sends a small group of men uh, to, to south to Joppa to pick up Peter and fetch him and bring him back. And we see the lens zoom out from Caesarea and then we see the lens zoom in to Joppa where we find Peter. Now verse 9, Peter goes up to the roof, it's about noon, and he goes in order to pray. The sun is probably beating down, it's hot I'm sure in the Middle East. And, and he either falls asleep, which he's been known to do during prayer, right? Uh, or, or he falls into some sort of trance. Well, whatever it is, he too receives a divine vision. Although this one, as you obviously just read, is a bit more odd, isn't it? The sky splits. And a picnic blanket falls down from the sky. And you know, verse 10, it's interesting. It tells us that he's a bit hungry. His stomach is rumbling, right? So I imagine he's like, you know, maybe a food trance. He's, he's expecting to to maybe see some uh, vegetarian Big Mac or something like that, that he's, he's about to devour in his, in his trance. But to his surprise, and if you're a vegetarian, to your great surprise, it's filled with clean and unclean animals. Which means uh, it's filled with a number of animals that the Jewish law forbade Jews to eat. And then a voice cried out, Get up! Peter! Kill! And eat. And of course, Peter, the good Jew as he is, is horrified. Never, Lord! Never! I don't want to become unclean. I would never do that. You can almost hear, you can hear Peter talking to Jesus right now, can't you? Never, Lord, you know? And the divine voice responds Peter, don't, don't call something impure that God has made clean. Uh, okay. What's, what in the world is going on here? Especially if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament. This sounds like, what in the world? This book is crazy. It is a bit crazy, to be honest. The disciples, especially Peter, they kind of get Jesus. This happens all throughout the Gospels. They kind of get Jesus, but they never totally understand the full ramifications that Jesus has on, on religion. You see... When Jesus arrives, he massively changes everything. Why? Because he brings with him what he calls a new covenant. That's not a word we use every now and then. We use it sometimes with the word marriage, right? A covenant in marriage. What does it mean? A covenant dictates a person's relationship with God. Okay? So in the old covenant, God's people relate to God. How? Through a temple, through priests, through sacrifice, through obedience to the Old Testament law. Okay, that's how, if you want to meet God, you have to go in this avenue to God. Temple, priest, sacrifice, law. And, and, and what, what Jesus is saying is, I brought this new covenant that fulfilled and replaced the old one. You don't need a temple, Peter, because Jesus is here. You don't need a priest because Jesus is the priest. You don't need sacrifice because Jesus was the sacrifice. You don't need to obey. You're no longer under this Old Testament Mosaic law because I fulfilled. Jesus has fulfilled. And by fulfilling, replaced that law with the law of Christ. So he's saying, Peter, you've got to understand that Jesus, he changes everything. There's no distinction between these unclean foods and these clean foods, or unclean and, and, and clean people anymore. Okay, why is this important for Peter? Well, why does it matter to him? Why is God giving him this now? 
Well, quite simply, it means that he can sit down for a meal and have fellowship with a Roman, even if that Roman's eating a baked potato with him. Okay? Anyway, now Peter's really hungry, isn't he? Never had a baked potato. He's still on the roof trying to figure out what's going on. What the world was this picnic thing at four? I was expecting a big meal, and there, there goes the doorbell. It's a group of Gentiles from Caesarea. Let's make a long story short, right? They tell them about, about Cornelius' vision, and they say, listen, God wants you, Peter, to come to Caesarea and preach the gospel. Man, if evangelism works like that today, ding dong, would you come over here and preach the gospel for us? That would be amazing. Maybe we should pray for that more often. So the whole entourage makes their, back, their way back from Joppa up to Caesarea, and when they arrive, Cornelius says, come on, preach. We need to hear God's message. And I want us to focus for a couple minutes on, on verses 34 to 43. Some Bibles mark that out specifically. I don't think the ones in the pew does. But, but that, that's a very important section. Because this is one of the earliest sermons that we ever get in the Christian tradition. You want to know what Christian preaching looked like just after Jesus died and rose again? The earliest Christian sermons? Here, here's a, this was either a seven-minute sermon. Maybe you have something to learn. Or, or this was a seven-minute version of a longer sermon. I, I don't know. We'll see. But it, he does a lot. Seven, you know, it takes about two minutes to read. He's got seven points. Um, so here we go. Seven points in two minutes from, uh, from Peter's message. <coughs> First, verse 34. The gospel invites all. This is what Peter preaches. God shows no favoritism. Your pedigree... Your race, your socioeconomic status, your, your gifts, your job, your wit, your education, don't get you an inch closer to God. And that's good news for a guy like Cornelius, who doesn't have, in spiritual terms, some impressive pedigree. Second, verse 35, the good news, gospel of peace, comes through Jesus Christ. This is also important. Because it means that if you're going to get the good news of the gospel... Worshipping an abstract God is not going to help you now that Jesus has arrived. Why? Because God, sorry, Jesus reveals God to us. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus, is what he said. You can't know and worship God, Cornelius, if you don't know and worship Jesus. And then Peter goes on to preach who Jesus is and what he's done. 3, verse 38. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? God gave his word of affirmation, his, his verification. You have the little Google verified. This is God's Google verified uh, on websites. This is God's way of saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Verse 39, Jesus was killed upon a tree. I think your version says cross. Tree is really what's used there. But that means Jesus' death was taking a curse. The, the reason they use tree it's because in the Old Testament says, cursed is anyone who, who dies upon a tree. And so he's emphasizing that this, this death wasn't a meaningless death. It's a death that takes a curse. Our curse. The curse that we deserve for sin, for, for sinning, for rebelling against God. 5 verse 40. But God raised him on the third day. Our curse and our sin was absorbed by his death, but then Jesus defeats death. 6, verse 40, the risen Christ was seen and witnessed by many people. 
Some people, including Peter, verse 41, actually ate and drank with him. So we ate with this guy. We drank with the, we, with the resurrected Christ. This was no premonition. This was no hallucination. We saw him. We ate with him. We touched him. We experienced him. And others did as well. This, this gospel message I'm telling you, Cornelius, was rooted in historical events. It's not, some, it's not some Eastern mystical religion or Eastern mystical philosophy. This is something that is rooted in something that happened. Finally, and most importantly, verse 43. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins. Cornelius, you've got you've to be forgiven for your sins. How are the guilty pardoned? How can you go from justly condemned to freely forgiven? Turn. Trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for you. In his death and resurrection. Okay, let's come back to don't make a half turn. Next, next slide. I think many people in today's culture won't understand. Peter arrives. Why does he still need to preach? You know, you can mistakenly think this story is simply about Peter being moved from his prejudice and, and into, and, into a more, you know, tolerant and inclusivism, right? And actually, we will come to that. It, this, this, this story is very much about Peter as well. But in, in many ways, you can see it, it could just be about a story about people are accepted just the way they are and, you know, that's fine. Why, why would Peter need to preach? But here's the surprising point to our, our modern ears. God's inclusivity, inclusive, he's inclusive, draws a wide circle. His invitation to all does not mean that he accepts all the way they are. God invites us as we are, but he does not accept us the way we are. Cornelius is a God-fearer. He's charitable, he's a man of prayer. And yet the, the fact that Peter must preach the gospel means it wasn't enough. It's remarkable. When, when people ask me what I do for a living, uh, I often, and I, you know, I tell them I'm, I'm a minister. It usually either shuts down conversations entirely, which is fine, you know, try to resurrect it some other way. Or, or um, I get a very common response that says, oh, oh, I believe in God. And, and you know, it's not my job to... You know, distinguish the veracity of, of that, that claim. But, but I often want to respond. I never respond like this, but I often want to respond. I don't care. <laughs> and they start thinking, Luke, I'm not sure you should be preaching if you don't care. What I mean by that is this. God isn't interested in you simply acknowledging his existence. God's not in it just to get approval ratings. God is, God's goal is not simply to get as many people on team theist rather than team atheist. That's not his goal. In one sense, it doesn't matter. Your eternity does not hinge upon whether you simply believe there is a God or there is not a God. Where you will spend eternity does hinge upon what you, how you respond to Jesus. Where you will spend eternity does hinge upon whether you've acknowledged your sin and you've turned from that sin and you've flung all your dependence on, on Christ 
and the mercy that he has won for you on the cross. <coughs> God's not interested in getting more acknowledgers. He wants dependers. He wants submitters. He wants people to say, I submit to King Jesus. That's what he's looking for. This is a very popular conception of, of coming to Christ or being a Christian. A lot of people think that becoming a Christian is kind of like ticking the box, yes, I believe in God, on this kind of divine final exam, this heavenly final exam or something like that. And if, if that's the way you, you become a Christian, you're just, that's just, you're mistaken. Cornelius ticked the box. He even ticked the charitable box and the prayer box. And he still needed his sins forgiven through Jesus. Don't make that turn. Don't make a half turn when God's calling you to make a U-turn. That's point one. Point number two, which focuses on Peter, is this. Never stop turning. Or I should say, never stop returning. Our focus has been primarily on Cornelius, but there's a sense in which the person who's actually doing the most changing in this story is Peter. One writer says, this story is just as much about the conversion of Peter, the apostle, as it is about Cornelius, the, the Gentile. Now, what he doesn't mean by that, that, that Peter's coming to Christ for the first time, that he's being actually converted here. But, but what he's saying is, there's a sense in which once, once you begin to follow Christ, once you, once you say, I'm sticking my flag with Christ, that you have chosen a life, that means following Jesus means constantly reorienting your heart, your motives, your decisions, your life around Jesus and his word. Which means a thousand little turns back to the Jesus way. Let's look back at what happened to Peter. We already discussed the strange vision. We don't, we don't need to discuss that again. But it's remarkable, immediately after the vision, where God says, I declared everything pure. And say, there is no distinction between these clean and these ceremonial laws of Old Testament Israel. Gone. Verse 23, the verse right after that, Peter invites them into his house, these Gentiles, to eat and to sleep. And then the next day, he goes to Cornelius' house, and he stays the night in Cornelius' house, and he eats and he sleeps with Cornelius. Now, this might not sound like something incredibly profound or incredibly significant. So what? He had some people over in his house. But this was massively provocative in the first century as a Jew. In fact, you can see how massively provocative it would have been because look down at chapter 11, verse 2. This is the next section. We're not in it today. Peter goes down to Jerusalem. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Next week, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So he's already getting in trouble. He, he's already being alienated from his own culture, his friends. Peter explains what was going on in his mind and his heart in chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Let's read it. 28 and 29. Peter arrives at Cornelius' house, and he says to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a, and visit a, a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I, I came without raising any objection. Now, I want to say a couple things about this real quick. Because there's a bit, something's a bit confusing here. The word law, see that in verse 28? It's against our law. To associate with your law. 
The word law there in verse 28 is not the word used for the Mosaic law. You know, Genesis to Deuteronomy. That's the word namas. Not that it matters to you, but that, that's what it is. He uses a different word. There's nowhere in the Old Testament where God says, you, you can't hang out with Gentiles. You, you, gotta stay, you can't associate with them at all. Okay? He uses the word athemitas, which, is, which simply means this. It can be translated law, but it, it's a custom. The dumb thing, the, the tradition. Okay? He's saying it was against our religious customs to eat or associate with Gentiles. Now, why, why was it against the religious custom? Well, well it is. You know, if, if Gentiles were to serve unclean food to you, and you're, you go to a Gentile's house and he serves unclean food, or maybe he's touched some unclean food at some point in the past, and, and then he, he handles your food, then you would become un, unclean. So you, you know this about the Pharisees over time, right? They wanted to be a thousand miles away from anything unclean. Yuck, these Gentiles. It, it became part of their tradition, an evil and wrong tradition, to just disassociate with these people altogether. Well, Peter's beginning to realize that racial and ethnic distinctions that are so, you have to remember, these are so seared into his mind by the religious culture of his time, he's, he's beginning to realize they're wrong. And it's easy to forget and think Peter's just being a jerk here. His whole way of thinking is being transformed by the gospel. Peter is realizing slowly that his commitment to follow Jesus trumps his deeply held religious, or his deeply held cultural customs. He's slowly realizing that his commitment to Jesus transforms the way he thinks about and even negates the way he thinks about his own cultural assumptions. Following Jesus is a lifetime commitment to turning away from your own assumptions and following the Jesus way when they converge. Christian, do you, do you realize that following Jesus means daily denying yourself? Dying to your own assumptions about right and wrong? One way I think is, that's great at getting at this is this way. Does, does your God ever disagree with you? Does your Bible ever disagree with you? What I mean by that is if, if, you, if your understanding of God never disagrees with the way you think, then if there's a good chance that you don't actually worship God, you worship yourself and then call it God. very easy to make, and I'm talking to myself, it's very easy to make God fit into our own image, right? And then to just project ourselves upon God. But true discipleship, this is hard, is constantly reevaluating your own desires, examining your own sinfulness, and turning them to the Jesus way. Following Jesus, quite, quite frankly, means obeying Jesus even when you don't like it. Now, don't get me wrong. I want you to like following Jesus. <laughs> There's no, God doesn't want you to obey him with, with a hard heart, obviously, right? But this is so obvious with our children. I mean, that they need to trust us and obey us, even when they don't like it. There's like half the things I tell my kids they don't like that I'm saying, you know, because they would rather have three milkshakes before they go to bed and they bounce them off the walls. But, but we, we see the long game, don't we, as parents usually. We see the long game. We're looking out for them, and we're telling them to, to... 
What they need to do is they need to obey us and trust us even though they don't understand and even if they don't like it. And then somehow we become adults. <laughs> somehow. I'm not sure how that Somehow we become adults. And, and, and then we, we treat Jesus sometimes like he just doesn't understand the complexity of my life and my situation. So certainly this biblical command or, or, or what he's saying here, if he just understood how, how complex my life is or if he just understand how complex our culture was, he certainly wouldn't expect us to, to, do, to do it his way. And so we turn around, instead of trusting and reorienting our life to Jesus, we just say, Jesus, you don't really understand. I'm going to do it my way. I wonder whether you as a follower of Jesus, here's one application, look at people and treat people the way like Jesus did. Or maybe you claim, you claim Jesus, but, but like Peter, treat, treat certain people as less than human. Out of God's reach. Maybe, maybe it's the way you engage with people on social media. Do you treat your political opponents as image bearers of God? Or as kind of vile enemies who need to hear your rage? Do you treat the poor and vulnerable as frustrating projects? People who, who just don't have anything to offer you? Nuisances? Do you see certain ethnicities maybe as not so sophisticated as yours? Do you view people with confused and non-biblical views on sexuality and gender as evil pariahs trying to change your way of life? All these are ways of actually undermining the very gospel that we're proclaiming. Not, we're not, when we do that, we're not, we're not viewing humans with all the dignity that they are because they're image bearers. We're all image bearers, all deserving dignity no matter who or where they're from. Or what they believe, all image bearers deserving, deserving our dignity, or just their own dignity that God has given them, and all in need of forgiveness, like, like you and me. Well, Peter, to, to his great surprise, back to the text. Before he can even finish his sermon, the Gentiles, the outsiders, the unclean, erupt praising God in supernatural tongues. Right? They have believed, they have turned, they have repented, they have believed, and the Holy Spirit has descended upon these people. And in the, in the book of Acts, what that means is God has given them new life. These people receive a sign. This sign means God has made us fully part of God's kingdom. We're in, we're in just as much as the next guy. They weren't second-class citizens in God's kingdom. There are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. Friend, if you have turned... From your sin and put your trust in Christ, God has made you part of his family. You are as intimately his, an object of his love and affection, as the godliest person you know. There aren't any second-class citizens here. The success or lack of success you may have had on this earth does not put you in some kind of heavenly pecking order. Do you believe that? God doesn't give a rip about that stuff, to be fair. I mean, he cares about your work. But he's not so concerned about your personal success. He wants to know, have you been broken? And have you desperately flung yourself on the mercy of Christ? That's what he wants to know. Well, Cornelius makes the full turn. 
If God has given him the baptism of the Spirit, how can Peter not put on the sign of baptism upon these people, right? But baptism is the sign that you're fully part of, you're part of God's people, God's community, the church. And Acts 10 ends with this amazing, one of the first ever Jewish-Gentile baptism services. It's a glorious moment. Maybe they celebrated with a barbecue afterwards and Cornelius handed Peter his first bacon sandwich. I'm probably getting beyond the text here. But you never know, okay? Really, there are two things I want you to get from today's sermon. The first one, and it's two points. Don't do a half turn. A half turn won't, won't get you any closer to eternal life. God, God isn't in the business of just looking for all the nice people in the world. That's what a lot of religious people think out there, isn't it? God's just looking down. Where, where are the nice people? Ah, they're mine. That's not, that's not at all what he's doing. If Acts proves that, you've got to turn from your sin. You've got to turn from your, your, and not only your sin, but your own attempts to save yourself. And you've got to put, you've got to turn in full dependence on Jesus. Don't make a half turn. Secondly, when you, when you become a Christian, you don't stop turning. That's a myth out there, isn't it? I came in 20 years ago, and I'm just floating on the beach ever since. Yeah, not on the beach, on the water. Floating along. That's not, that's not at all the vision you get. That's not what Peter did. Life, the Christian life is one constant cycle of drifting Getting your eyes fixed off Jesus, realizing your cultural assumptions are so far off the Jesus way, and then returning, and returning, and refixing your eyes on Jesus. That's the Christian life. You never stop. You never stop turning. So don't stop turning. Back to Christ. As I thought of how, how, how I'd close today and how I'd pray, I usually even think about how I'm going to pray at the end. I thought, oh, there's no better words than that. the old chorus. Um... Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.